welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor. Today, we will be discussing part two of the Halifax explosion, this time from the perspective of SS Mont Blanc. Before we dive in, I must inform you. This story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the loss of a vessel and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please note before I begin that I am not a mariner or expert in the field of maritime history, but I have done my research and will present the information as I understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, I will be including the basics of nautical terminology in the description for anyone who needs it. In today's episode, there will be some terms in the French and Norwegian languages, neither of which am I fluent, but I will do my best to give accurate pronunciations. Let's get into part two of the Halifax Explosion. Last week, we covered the perspective of SS Emo, and this week, we look at the perspective of the ship that exploded, SS Mont Blanc. The French cargo ship would be built by Sir Railton Dixon and Company in Middlesbrough, England, for the General Society of Maritime Transport, as translated into English, also known as SGTM. Since I'm very American and struggle with French, we'll call them SGTM moving forward. As for her name, SS Mont Blanc was named for the highest mountain in the Alps and Western Europe, located on the French-Italian border, Mont Blanc. Her keel was laid sometime in 1888 in yard number 460. She'd be 320 feet long, have a beam of 44.8 feet wide, and a depth of 15.3 feet deep. She was built as a three-island style ship, which is a technique used in the construction of steel-hulled ships whereby a ship was built with a forecastle, bridge deck, and poop deck. It is very common in smaller vessels and tramp steamers, which SS Montblanc was. She was equipped with one triple expansion steam engine powering one screw, and during World War I, she had two naval guns on her decks. Her code letters were KHTN, and SGTM registered her in Marseille, France, after her launch on March 25, 1899. She'd be completed in June of that year. She'd be sold to another owner, E. M. Tequil, in 1906, and they'd change her port of registry to Rouen, a city on the River Seine in northern France. In 1915, another native of Rouen acquired her, a ship owner named Gaston Petit, and on December 28, 1915, she was acquired by the Compagnie Générale Transatlantique, also known as the French Line. The same company that owned SS La Bergeonne, the first ship we ever covered here on Shipwreck Sunday. They'd register her in Saint-Nazaire in western France, and this was her final owner. We don't know much about her career before the Halifax explosion, so we will skip to the Halifax explosion. SS Mont Blanc was chartered by the military to carry a fully loaded cargo of miscellaneous types of military explosives, carrying the freight from New York City to France in November of 1917. Though Mont Blanc wasn't a brand new ship, she wasn't old either, and was still in the prime of her career. However, this didn't negate the fact that she was relatively slow and a common tramp steamer, which wasn't uncommon among requisitioned wartime freighters. On December 1st, 1917, she left New York City to join a convoy in Halifax, Nova Scotia. She arrived in Halifax Harbor on December 5th, mastered by her captain, Captain Amy Le Madiche. As for her dangerous cargo, she was loaded to the brim with gun cotton, picric acid, and TNT in her hold as well as barrels up on deck containing the high-octane fuel we covered last week, benzol. 
Gun cotton, or nitrocellulose, is a highly flammable compound formed by nitrating cellulose through an exposure to a mixture of nitric acid and sulfuric acid, and picric acid, also known as TNP, is one of the most acidic phenols and is an explosive, though it has been used as antiseptic, burn treatment, and dye in the past. To say that Mont Blanc was a ticking time bomb would be the understatement of the 20th century. In Halifax, she intended to join a convoy of other fellow slow-moving vessels that were gathering in Bedford Basin and readying to depart for Europe. But she was too late to enter the harbor that evening because the anti-submarine nets were raised for the evening. Before World War I started, ships carrying dangerous cargo were not permitted in Halifax Harbor. However, German submarines posed such a risk that the harbor relaxed this regulation and allowed ships carrying wartime explosive and munitions into Halifax. An experienced harbor pilot came aboard the Mont Blanc to guide her through the potentially hazardous Halifax Harbor. And if you don't know what a pilot for ship is, we'll go over that now. A maritime pilot, sometimes called a marine pilot, harbor pilot, port pilot, ship pilot, or simply a pilot, is a mariner who maneuvers ships through dangerous or congested waters, like river mouths or harbors. They are incredibly skilled professionals in navigation, since they are required to know immense details of waterways such as depth, currents, and hazards, as well as displaying expertise in handling ships of all types and sizes. The experienced harbor pilot guiding SS Mont Blanc would be Francis Mackey, and he boarded the Mont Blanc in the evening of December 5, 1917. When he boarded, he asked about special protections, like a guard ship since the ship's cargo was highly volatile, but there weren't any such protections in place, and had there been, we might not be speaking about the Halifax explosion right now. Bright and early in the morning on December 6th, around 7.30 a.m., the Mont Blanc started to creep toward Bedford Basin. Mackey kept a keen eye on all of the ferry boats and small boats in the area between Halifax and Dartmouth. He saw another ship approaching about three quarters of a mile away, and this wasn't unusual. Ships passed each other all the time. However, this ship, SS Emo, concerned Mackey immediately as her path seemed to be drifting toward the starboard side of the Mont Blanc, the ship he was in charge of. To signal to SS Emo that they had the right of way, he gave a short blast of the Mont Blanc's whistle. However, SS Emo did not plan on yielding, and they signaled so by giving off two blasts of their whistle. Captain Le Medici ordered SS Mont Blanc to halt her engines and angle slightly to starboard, which was closer to the Dartmouth side of the Narrows. Mont Blanc let out yet another short blast of their whistle, hoping SS Emo would indicate she'd pass starboard to starboard, but unfortunately they were met with a resounding double blast that indicated a hard no. Halifax Harbor is densely populated, and so of course, there were sailors on other nearby ships that heard the whistle blasts. They knew that an inevitable collision was coming, and so they gathered on the decks of their respective vessels to gawk at SS Emo as she was about to crash right into the Mont Blanc. At this point, both ships had halted their engines, but it takes longer to break in the water than it does on dry land, so the ships both had momentum carrying them forward at slow speeds, and they'd crash right into one another. Mackey couldn't ground the Mont Blanc since there was a huge risk of setting off the enormously explosive cargo in the hull, and so he ordered the ship to steer hard to port, turning to the starboard helm, and to try and avoid the bow of SS Emo. Unfortunately, it was too late. 
The two ships were almost parallel to one another, and could possibly have passed by one another narrowly when SS Emo let out three short blasts, indicating she was reversing her engines. If you remember last week, SS Emo was plagued with an empty cargo hold pulling her rudder up out of the water and transverse thrust of her right-hand propeller, and this caused SS Emo's bow to swing smack into Mont Blanc. The prow of Emo's bow pushed deep into Mont Blanc's number one cargo hold on her starboard side. The two ships struck one another at 8.45 a.m., and with the bow of SS Emo lodged in the Mont Blanc, everything seemed okay for the moment. The damage to Mont Blanc would not have sank her if the explosion didn't take place. However, barrels of benzol toppled over and the liquid poured out everywhere, seeping down into the cargo hold with all of the other explosives. Emo's engines finally kicked in and she reversed sharply, pulling away from Mont Blanc. The grinding of the two steel steamers created sparks within Mont Blanc's hull, and these sparks ignited flammable vapors from the benzol, with a fire quickly sprouting up at the waterline. It climbed up the side of the ship as benzol splashed onto the decks from crushed oil drums, and this further fed the fire and made it unstoppable. Thick black smoke made the air hot and heavy, and the captain took note of his surroundings and saw the writing on the wall. The ship was lost already, but it could explode, and so he ordered the crew to abandon ship quickly. Citizens of the city of Halifax, fueled by curiosity, flooded into the street and grew closer to the harbor, wanting to see the source of the flames and smoke. The crew of the Mont Blanc, panicking that their ship was in danger of exploding, clambered into the lifeboats and began lowering away. Crew members from two of these lifeboats shouted to other nearby vessels to clear out, and that Mont Blanc was minutes from a catastrophic explosion. However, their warnings were not heard over the noise and confusion. The lifeboats rowed across the harbor to the Dartmouth shore, with the ship now abandoned and drifting. Mont Blanc would beach herself at Pier 6 near the foot of Richmond Street just before the real disaster would strike. At exactly 9 hours, 4 minutes, and 35 seconds in the morning, the fire burned into the cargo hold and set off the explosives, causing what would be known as the Halifax Explosion. Instantly, the ship was blown to smithereens, and a powerful blast wave radiated away from where the Mont Blanc once stood, at more than 3,300 feet per second. At the center of the explosion, it was 9,030 degrees Fahrenheit, and the pressure was as intense as thousands of atmospheres. This explosion was absolutely catastrophic for the town of Halifax, sending debris flying through the air that killed people, as well as buildings being demolished and crushing people. All of the crew of the Mont Blanc, except one, survived the explosion. This one crew member, 20-year-old gunner Yves Quickener, probably died of blood loss after being hit by flying debris from the blast. Roughly 1,950 people died, though some sources do claim the death toll to be well over 2,000. Around 9,000 people, possibly more, were injured due to the explosion. More than 1,600 buildings and homes were leveled completely, with 12,000 more being damaged, absolutely devastating the city of Halifax. Because the Mont Blanc was blown to bits, she became shrapnel that injured people in the blast zone. That resulted in around 250 people to lose an eye to shrapnel or glass from windows blown in, and 37 people were blinded entirely. Until the United States dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, ending World War II, the Halifax explosion was regarded as the largest man-made explosion in the history of mankind. Of course, there was a judicial inquiry performed to find fault and investigate the collision by the Wreck Commissioner's Inquiry, 
Proceedings for this inquiry began at the Halifax Courthouse on December 13, 1917, and presiding over this inquiry was Justice Arthur Drysdale. The report came from the inquiry was released on February 4, 1918, and initially it blamed Captain Emile Medich of the SS Mont Blanc, as well as pilot Francis Mackey and the Royal Canadian Navy's chief examining officer in charge of Halifax Harbor, anti-submarine defenses, and the Gates Commander F. Evan Wyatt. Originally, Justice Drysdale agreed with an opinion given by Dominion Rec Commissioner L.A. Demers, and that was that, quote, it was the Mont Blanc's responsibility alone to ensure that she avoided a collision at all costs because of the explosive cargo in her holds. Demers was more than likely influenced by the strongly anti-French local opinions and by the, quote, street fighter style of argumentation employed by SS Emo's lawyer, Charles Birchall. I can see why they might think that, but I personally disagree. I think SS Emo should hold the lion's share of the blame, especially given the details of the story where Emo refused to budge. And I'm not alone in that thought, because according to Crown Counsel W.A. Henry, this was, quote, a great surprise to most people, since many had expected SS Emo to take the blame for being on the wrong side of the channel refusing to change course. Unfortunately, Captain Le Medish, Pilot Mackey, and Commander Wyatt would all be charged with criminal negligence and manslaughter at a preliminary hearing heard by stipendiary magistrate Richard A. McLeod, and it was then off to trial. Now, we are going to be getting into some legal terms, and I'll give you the poor man's definition as I'm not a lawyer. If we have any lawyers listening, feel free to add to the conversation. Mackey's lawyer, Walter Joseph O'Hearn, was not pleased with the charges against his client and felt they had no merit. And so he went to Nova Scotia Supreme Court Justice Benjamin Russell to issue a writ of habeas corpus. A writ of habeas corpus is a writ requiring a person under arrest to be brought before a judge or into court, especially to secure the person's release unless lawful grounds are shown for their detention. Justice Russell agreed with Mr. O'Hearn that there was absolutely no justification for the charges and immediately released Pilot Mackey on March 15, 1918. Since Mont Blanc's captain was also arrested on that warrant, he was also given a written discharge, though he hadn't been jailed yet. There were plenty of people completely flabbergasted by Justice Russell's decision, one of the more vocal being Attorney General Orlando Tiles Daniels. A few weeks later, on April 2nd, 1918, Prosecutor Andrew Clunny made an attempt on behalf of the Attorney General's office to overturn the decision made by Justice Russell through the Nova Scotia Supreme Court, though it failed because of lack of jurisdiction. Jurisdiction, in the legal sense, is defined as the power of a court to adjudicate cases and issue orders, and it is also territory within which a court or government agency, like police, may properly exercise its power. For example, police officers working in Los Angeles County do not have jurisdiction in San Francisco County and vice versa, and the same goes for the courts. Two other subsequent bids to indict Mackey on April 9th and October 2nd, 1918 respectively also failed due to jurisdiction. Mr. O'Hearn hadn't been quiet about the lack of jurisdiction, and he'd pointed this out at the very beginning of court proceedings. Four out of five Supreme Court justices agreed, which included Chief Justice Edward Robert Harris. Justice Arthur Drysdale was the only one who disagreed, and of course he would. It was the case he had ruled on, and of course he'd stick to his ruling. Ultimately, Justice Russell's decision was final and upheld. 
the case, Henri Mackey, would ultimately be added to the Criminal Code of Canada beginning in 1919 under Section 262. The Criminal Code of Canada is a law that codifies most criminal offenses and procedures in Canada, and its official title is An Act Respecting the Criminal Law, and it is sometimes abbreviated as CRC in legal reports. Henry Mackey would be entitled manslaughter defined under Section 262, and that means it's still referred to even to this day in 2023. Russell would go on to preside over Commander F. Evan Wyatt's grand jury hearing on March 19th and 20th of 1918, and his trial on April 17th, 1918. It took less than a day for the trial to end with an acquittal on both charges against him. Justice Russell wrote an autobiography, and in it he discusses the legal proceedings following the Halifax explosion. He reflected upon this, stating, quote, Civium ardor prava jubentium gave me all of that I could do in disposing of these cases with which I was bound to deal. One of these concerned the official in charge of the wiring across the mouth of the harbor. To suppose he had anything in the world to do with the disaster was an utterly lunatic motion. Yet my impression is that the grand jury insisted on finding a true bill and placing him on trial. When the bill reached me, I got rid of it in the shortest and easiest way possible. It was simply nonsensical, and the fact a grand jury could find it was symptomatic of the condition of the common feeling. Okay, that was a lot from an incredibly intelligent man. Let me translate that just a bit. Civium ardor providentium refers to a quote from James Madison to Thomas Jefferson on March 15, 1789, where he states, Justum et tenesum prospiciti virum, non civium ardor providentium, which translate from Latin to English as, quote, The man tenacious of his purpose in a righteous cause is not shaken from his firm resolve by the frenzy of his fellow citizens bidding what is wrong. So, he was sticking to his guns despite the crazed actions of the other members on the grand jury. Bravo, Justice Benjamin Russell. I wholeheartedly agree with his decision, and I believe he did the right thing when no one else would. As for Justice Drysdale, he also oversaw the first civil litigation trial in regards to the Halifax explosion. In this litigation, the owners of SS Emo and SS Mont Blanc both sought damages from the other. His decision, found on April 27, 1918, found the Mont Blanc once again entirely at fault, which frustrates the hell out of me. Subsequent appeals to the Supreme Court of Canada on May 19, 1919, and the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in London on March 22, 1920, determined that SS Emo and SS Montblanc were both equally to blame for navigational errors leading up to the disaster. It's unclear what Drysdale did with his career after this. As for what's left of SS Montblanc, she was completely destroyed, and the remains of what is left of her hull were launched almost 1,000 feet up into the air in all directions. Steel fragments from her fittings and hull littered the landscape of Halifax and Dartmouth, some traveling almost two and a half miles away. Today, there are still some large fragments that exist, one of which is Montblanc's guns, which landed about 3.5 miles north of the blast site, and her anchor shank that landed around 2 miles south of the blast zone. They are mounted to where they landed as monuments to the disaster that happened over 100 years ago. Other fragments are on display at the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic in Halifax, and they have a vast selection of pieces from Montblanc. Most were recovered from homes of survivors. 
Remnants of her wrecked lifeboats were found washed ashore at the foot of Morris Street on December 26, 1917 and name boards from the boat were salvaged and collected by Harry Pierce, a Canadian historian who passed away in 1940, and curator of the Nova Scotia Museum. Today, they are part of the collection at the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic. That, dear listeners, is the second half of the story for the Halifax explosion. As my mother always taught me, there are always two stories, and the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I hope this two-part series paid homage to the victims of the disaster, May they rest in peace. With this episode, I hope to keep the story of SS Montblanc alive, so we will never repeat the mistakes of the past. Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you liked this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a 5-star review, as it does help us reach more listeners like you. If you have any ships you'd like us to cover, please leave us a comment and you might hear your favorite ship here on the podcast. Check out our community tab for updates and to interact with us. And don't forget to check out our second channel, Speed Force Media. Next week, I'll be on vacation. And so our shorter episode will be on our most popular episodes and how far we have come in year one of Shipwreck Sunday. Have a great week and we'll see you next time. Thank you.